Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 1133. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope in which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rulers and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Father, we just thank you that you've chosen us, you have made us part of your called out ones, your ecclesia, and you've made it possible for us to be redeemed through Jesus Christ. And we ask that, uh, that the Holy Spirit will be with us today, inspire us, teach us, and, and be with Mark as he brings us the word that you've given for him for today, for us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ron. I want to welcome you here, if, uh, especially if this is your first time 
or one of your few times that you have been with us. Um, we're very glad that you're here. And we look forward to what the Lord Jesus is doing among us here at uh, Bethesda Church. I hope you still have your Bibles open, but if you don't, if you could return back to Ephesians chapter 1 that Ron just read for us. We'll be referring back to the text uh, throughout our entire message here this morning. One of the least understood aspects of our biblical Christian faith and one of the least visible aspects of our practice of our biblical Christian faith must be our biblical, spiritual, and eternal connection to Israel, to Judaism, and our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Now having written that sentence and now having voiced that statement, I have to say amen and me too. I know I don't know nearly enough about the Jewishness of my own Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, as well as my own biblical Christian faith. I know this, and so what that means, to be brutally honest, is that my sincere faith, our sincere faith, even the sincere faith of much if not most of the Christian church today, is both less biblical and less Christian than it could be or than it should be. And this is self-evident. Since I became a Christian, and no less since I entered ministry, I've wanted to study, to learn, to listen, and to be able to lead others to become, be, and behave more biblically and more Christianly, and that by understanding more fully and more deeply the Jewishness of the Bible, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, and more truly and more fully be, become, and behave as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you may know or are able to surmise, one of my personal and pastoral commitments has been to become, to be, and to behave as fully biblical and as fully Christian as I can understand to do, and to lead others to do the same so we can become, be, and behave as thoroughly a biblical Christian congregation as we can manage to become, to be, and to do. In his excellent message last Sunday, Pastor Yuri attempted and succeeded, by the way, I wasn't just going to leave it hanging out there, and succeeded in answering a question that one of you recently posed. Has the church replaced Israel as the people of God? While he was preaching, I knew we would need to go further and do more with this, and so for the next three weeks, we'll seek the Bible's answer to a closely related question. If the church hasn't replaced Israel, and it hasn't, what is the relationship between the church and Israel, both in the Bible and also in our practice? One of the most important observations that Pastor Yuri made last Sunday is that the practical presumption of the church since very early in the church's history has been that yes, since Christ came, the church has effectively replaced Israel as God's people. Yuri went on to make the clear, convincing, and truly biblical Christian case that God's covenant with Israel still stands. 
that Israel has not been replaced in the heart, mind, purpose, and future plans of God by anyone or anything, and that God's covenant with Israel is eternal. This is vital biblical background for us to begin to understand and to respond positively and productively to the ongoing and yes, even eternal relationship between Israel and the church. We'll never become Jews in the flesh if we weren't born biologically Jewish. And there was a a great debate about that in the early church. Does a person need to become Jewish first in order to truly and fully become a Christian? a follower and disciple of Jesus. That was one of the first possible points of division in the church. And the answer, no, of course not. All that is required for a person to be rightly related to God, to be forgiven of our sins and to be saved is what Jesus has done on the cross and not anything else. And our faith in his provision on the cross and in the power of the resurrection to justify us before God. But in a sense, as we become Christians, we enter into a spiritual membership in Israel, in Christ and through Christ, adopted into God's own household and grafted in as true newly living branches into the living vine who is Jesus Christ himself And the father, as we know from John chapter 15, is the vine dresser. Today, with the New Testament revelation, we know more fully that God's keeping of all his commitments and his fulfilling of all his promises run through Jesus Christ. His life, his ministry, his teachings, and especially his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. There is no commitment of God kept. There is no promise of God's word fulfilled. There is no work of God's spirit brought into reality apart from or outside of Jesus Christ. We read something like that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And Yuri just made reference to it unknowingly. I had to be unknowingly that I was going to go here, but here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 19 to 22. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no... But in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we utter the amen through him. In Jesus' name, amen. To the glory of God. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And that's true for everyone. For Adam and Eve, for Abraham and Isaac, for Joseph and Jacob, for Moses and Joshua, for David and Solomon, for Joseph and Mary, for Peter and Paul, for James and John, for Augustine and Martin Luther, for John Calvin and John Piper, and for you and me. This is the biblical Christian gospel, whether we understand it or agree with it or accept it or not. 
Now, this is a very good place to review and apply that central truth of our message that I made reference to earlier today. It's up there in your upper left inside corner of your bulletin. Feel free to follow along as I just review it. I won't preach it, but I'll just kind of review it for us. Uh, you'll, you'll notice, no doubt, as I mentioned earlier, it's more outline uh, than summary and central truth. But I thought that it was uh, quite helpful to get to the core of the message today. Here it is, God's people, originally I said all of God's people, but then I put the all in a different place. God's people, and by that I mean past, present, and future, and by past I mean all the way back to Adam, and by present I mean all the way up to us, by future I mean every single person who will ever believe in the history of humanity until Christ comes. All people, all God's people, past, present, and future, have all been chosen, saved, and adopted into God's household in the same way. And I've got five separate points from this text that Ron just read. Verse 4 in Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, God's people, past, present, and future, have all been chosen, saved, and adopted into God's household in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. In Christ according to the purpose of God's will. Verse 7. In Christ by the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 13, in Christ sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And verse 14, in Christ to the praise of his glory. This is the biblical Christian gospel and there is no other. And one of the grand implications for this as I've noted already, but I want to reiterate, every one of God's children, God's whole people, come to God, are forgiven by God, are saved by God from meaninglessness, death, God's own holy and righteous wrath and hell, are adopted by God into his own family and household, are kept in faith and fidelity, and glorify him in the same way. Two words, what are they? In Christ. In Christ. Now let's turn to our focal text, which is the entire first chapter of my favorite book of the Bible, which is the book of Ephesians, which Ron read so well for us, which we don't have enough time for, so we should pray first. Please pray with me and for me now. Let's pray. Lord, time is always fleeting for a preacher. whether it's in preparation and the time to deliver is coming or we're in the midst of the delivery, time is always fleeting. So Lord, I pray that you would redeem this time for us. Allow me to speak your word and only your word and allow us to hear your word and only your word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If we are inclined to believe the whole Bible, And certainly, if we're committed to believing the whole Bible as best we can understand to do, this is not a hard sermon to preach. 
Surely, as importantly, if we're inclined to believe the whole Bible, and certainly if we're committed to believing the whole Bible as best we can understand to do, this is also not a hard sermon to hear. Joyfully, as we ought, applying it to our lives, ministry, and eternity. But if we're inclined to cut and paste our own more clever judgments and supposedly enlightened opinions into and over the many inconvenient and convicting truths of the whole Bible, then this would be a very difficult, almost impossible sermon to preach. And surely, this would be an equally, perhaps even more difficult, nearly impossible sermon to hear if we were among those souls more inclined to cut and paste our own more clever judgments and enlightened opinions into and over the many inconvenient truths of the whole Bible. So as we prepare to dig into the text for a much shorter time, giving it much less attention than it deserves, still we are ready to hear the glorious gospel of the grace of God. We are ready to respond in new or renewed faith to God in Christ Jesus, or at least I hope we are. I hope I am. If so, then let us proceed. The first thing we can notice from our text is this. It's number one. It's our first of five um, points of truth. I've made them as simple as I possibly can, as short as I can, which, you know, which means they're less than three lines. Here it is. Number one. The book of Ephesians, or as your text may say above the text, the, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, it is written to Jews and Gentiles alike who believe in Jesus Christ and together make up the church of Jesus Christ in various places and at various times. Please listen as I read the first two verses of Ephesians one, and then I'll comment about it a bit. Paul, an apostle, which simply means sent one, one who is sent specifically with a message. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So he's, he's asserting something important here. The message is not his. The calling is not his. The message is Jesus Christ's. And he is an apostle by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, I really liked the, the version that Ron was reading. Was it NIV? Was it? Were they, rather than saints, they say people of God or, 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 or holy ones, but people of God, I think... Holy ones is the, is, is, is the literal translation. It's agios, which, is, which means holy one or holy ones. Agiu. But he's talking about the people of God. And, and for this particular message, that's, per, that's a perfect adjustment. To the saints, holy ones, people of God who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice that conditional. This letter is written to the holy ones of God, to the people of God, also known as the saints of God, who are in Ephesus, and 
are faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're not faithful, you're, you're already replacing your own opinions, your own judgments in place of God's word. Don't do that. So he's writing plainly to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you. just want to make one uh, comment here. The you is plural. Our, our tendency, isn't it? Our tendency is to read this as singular. As in grace to me, not grace to we. But Paul, in every reference throughout this book, except for two in the sixth chapter, and both of those are quotations of Old Testament scripture, in every other reference to you, it's plural. There's not a single individual addressed in the, in the, in the church at Ephesus in the book of Ephesus. It's all of us. So when he says grace to you, it's more like grace to y'all. Or the southern plural, grace to all y'all. That would be a better translation of this word because English doesn't do it justice because our yous are, are only understood by, by context, whether they're singular or plural, and sometimes you can't tell. Well, grace to all y'all and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize Jews are not specifically mentioned here in Paul's greeting, but neither are Gentiles. Look at it. In fact, all believers to whom this letter is written, including there in Ephesus at that time and here in Winnipeg at this time, are referred to as saints or holy ones. Did, you heard that, right? You saw that. Look again with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, plural, all y'all, and peace from God, our Father, Paul, as a Jewish scholar, is saying to Christian brothers and sisters now, both Jewish and Gentile, grace to you, plural, and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I just mentioned, Paul was a Jewish believer and follower and disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ. He once was an enemy of Christ and a persecutor of the church. But responding to Jesus' personal calling, Paul became Christ's lead missionary, traveling more ground, planting more churches, and writing more books of the New Testament than anyone else. Well, except for the Holy Spirit, of course, who wrote them all, all 66 books of the Bible, moving the scripture writers to write God's word down in their language and in their place and in their time. And we know from the book of Acts and elsewhere actually, but we, but we know that Paul's regular practice in a new place as he made his missionary journeys, three of them, was to begin by going first to the Jewish residents of that village, town, or city, wherever they could be found, a synagogue typically, and teach them about their own Messiah, Jesus, and to preach the gospel among them until they literally threw him out. Out of the synagogue and even out of the town, village, or city where he was trying to preach 
and teach about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to the Jews. The gospel is for the Jews first and also the Gentiles. We'll come back to that. With Gandalf, Paul was labeled more than a few times as a disturber of the peace, also of commerce and of religion and of societal norms and practices as a Roman citizen. No less than five times, Paul received 39 lashes before they sent him on his way out of the town, out of the village, or out of the city. Five times. But not only did Paul himself make it his practice to go to the Jews first on his missionary journeys, he also asserted the important but oft overlooked principle, at least in practical terms, that the gospel itself is, quoting now from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for the Jew first and also, some translations say, then for the Gentile. I, I, I really like that particular adjustment, then for the Gentile, because it doesn't allow for the possibility of leaving out the Jews. For the Jew first and then, after you have reached the Jews, or, or at least you have preached and taught among the Jews, then for the Gentile. So then we can understand the book of Ephesians as a whole. And certainly this glorious first chapter, and it is a glorious first chapter, and it applies, and it was written for and to the whole people of God, Jews and Gentiles alike, which brings us to an interesting and sometimes confusing question of relationship. Since we've affirmed that the church has not replaced Israel as God's people, and the New Testament speaks of both Israel and the church as being established, built, kept, and sustained in Christ, are they the same? Are Israel and the church distinct from each other? Are they somehow one in essence and purpose, but separate in identity? And the answer to all of those questions is yes. Yes and yes and yes. Clearly, when, when taken as a whole, this is what the New Testament teaches, but, but there is still a good bit of mystery as to what this should look like, both now and into eternity. And so we learn, yet again, we don't know and we won't know everything. Don't you hate that? I do. This isn't the, in the manuscript, so this is free, no extra charge. One of the biggest points of growth in my life is when I stopped being a truth person or, or, or a right person and became a truth person. You know, the kind of person who always has to be right. I got to find the right answer so I can be right. You know, that kind of thing. And, and even when I'm wrong, I'm right. I know you can't believe it, but there was a time. It's not that funny. But when, by God's grace, I began becoming a truth person, looking for the truth, whether I was right or wrong, that was a big point of growth. Uh, of growth. And it's a, it's, it's a good word here also, I think, with our theological systems, which are really developed 
you know, so that we can prove our rightness. But we don't and we won't know everything. Theological systems are no systems and, and we must get comfortable with that. Some things God just chooses to keep to his own sovereign self and will only know in retrospect or in the light of eternity or maybe never. Now let's get into the meat of this chapter. It's, it, it, and it's one of the meatiest in the whole Bible. We've got about 20 minutes left to do it. You know, I'm just, I'm very thankful for Yuri in many w- different ways, but finally I've got an associate pastor that's inclined to preach longer than me. So that possibly when we get to the end of my messages, we can maybe <sighs> feel a breath. That 45-minute message by Mark, that was so refreshingly short. I know I'm dreaming. I do appreciate Yuri, though, and that's one of the reasons. So let's keep this truth in view. It's number two. Out of his sovereign goodness and grace, God in Christ Jesus has chosen for himself a people. Okay, so you got that? It's two parts. There are three. I'll give you the first two parts again. Out of his sovereign goodness and grace, God in Christ Jesus has chosen for himself a people. Here's the kicker. Since before the foundation of the world. Or as... The NIV that Ron read earlier says, before the creation of the world. Friends, the implications, the potential, and the blessings of this statement are almost limitless. This means that not only did God in Christ Jesus save you, if you are saved, because of his love and grace, at the point of your believing in Jesus, he chose you in display of his great grace and love eons before you were even born. And Israel to be a light to the nations too. Now I realize once again that we have no explicit reference to God's people Israel here yet. We'll have to wait for message 3 in Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22 for that. You can read ahead if you'd like. But please believe me when I say that everything pertaining to God's sovereign goodness and will in choosing a people for himself whether we call it Israel or the church or an individual by name, everything we read here in these verses 3 through 10 applies to all. Every single one of God's children, whether we're talking about Israel or the church or a single individual. Let's look at it from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And those of you who have been around for a while know that this is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, in the heavenly places. Actually, in the text, it doesn't say places. It says heavenlies. In the heavenlies. So I'll give you my 30-minute sermon on this. This This alters our understanding of heaven. Not that it's not a place, but this is not talking about a place in particular. This is talking about the heavenlies in, we could call it another dimension that are all around us that we don't have access to, that is only accessible through the Spirit in the heavenlies all around us. That's what is being talked about here in Ephesians five separate times, this exact phrase, in the heavenlies. And it's not talking about some place far, far away where God is and that we can be one day sometime if we're good. In the heavenlies means all around us where angels tread. In the heavenlies is where demons make their schemes. In the heavenlies is 
where the Holy Spirit moves. And we cannot see it with our eyes, we cannot feel it with our hands, we cannot hear it with our, with our ears, unless we've been given, given some special and usually limited and, and temporary dispensation to do so by a gift of the Holy Spirit. But that's what he's talking about in the heaven. It's far bigger than our concept, our, our normal concept. When we hear heaven or in, or in heavenly places, we're thinking someplace way out there. You know, unreachable, we'll get there one day, but not in this life. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about right now, all around us, in the heavenlies. Okay, that's my three-minute sermon, not 30 seconds. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, or... Your translation may see heaven, say heavenly realms or heavenly places. This is translators trying to help us. I don't think it helps us. It makes us kind of uh, put a place uh, here where it's not intended to be a place. It's all around us. Even as he chose us in him, that is, even as God chose us in Christ. Watch this now. What does it say? Before the foundation of the world. Now, you may, may be a wild-eyed wacky free free will person who believes that man makes free will choices all the time including his or her, her own salvation and that's not what the bible teaches we may not like it we may not think it's fair we may want credit for it but we have nothing to do with our own salvation except we respond to the word of God preached, the gospel preached or spoken that is carried along by the Holy Spirit opening our hearts and our minds to the truth of the gospel and we are saved. How can we have any part in this? Verse 4, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, we weren't here. We weren't a gleam in our daddy's eye. We weren't thought of, except in God's own heart. Even as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The one true and living God, the only truly sovereign in the whole universe, who is both good and gracious, in love, he predestined us. There's another word that we don't like because it takes our decision-making out of the process. What were we predestined for? For adoption to himself as sons. Now, I'll talk about this. Just Here, probably the sons is correct. And what, what I mean that, it says sons in the text, and it says sons, in, 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 but I mean in our understanding. Sometime... When we read son or sons in the text, it really means a, 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 a mixed group, male and female. I think here probably sons is correct because he's talking about the privileges of firstborn sons that were purchased for us, all of us, equally so in Christ. I think that's correct, right? Otherwise, I would probably tend to adjust this a little bit for us, for our hearing and our understanding as sons and daughters. But I think here... He's, he's talking about the, the inheritance of firstborn sons to the Father through Jesus Christ, and that's all of us. All of us are in that category. It's not talking about a male-type group of people. It's talking about those who have been uh, given the privilege of firstborn sons. 
and us now, whether we are sons or daughters, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice all the we's and the us's. There aren't many you's, and when, they are, when there are, they're all plural. Verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There's that phrase again. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse, verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon. I just love that word, lavished. Lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here, here's another reference to heaven. This is not in the heavenlies. This is in heaven. Horanos is the, is the, is the Greek word for it. And it, it does refer to a place but it's probably talking about the place that's outside of our reach in the natural, which is basically the same. And things on earth. That's a lot. I know, that's a lot. So we better keep moving. Um, but but as, we, as we do move on, we can clearly see this is not a truth for the Gentile church only. This is a truth for God's great grace, mercy, and love for all people in all places and throughout all times. The scriptures are clear. God will choose for himself a people, and he has chosen already indeed since before the foundation of the world. Did you see that? But that's certainly not all. We also see in our text from verses 11 through 14 that, here's number three for you, God in Christ Jesus has given his people an eternal inheritance. God in Christ Jesus has given his people, if we're in Christ, in other words, an eternal inheritance sealed for us and in us by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee until we take hold of it to the praise of God's glory. Once again, we see the intimate and indispensable role of the Holy Spirit in the saving, the sustaining, the protecting, and the keeping work of God in, for, and through his people. And again, this is fundamental truth, whether we're talking about Israel or the church. Look at verses 11 through 14. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. There it is again. Predestined, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, now here he must be thinking about, he must be thinking about the first Jewish Christians. He must. There are 12 disciples minus one plus Paul, I think. There were 3,000 or so on the day of Pentecost that came to Christ. Most of them almost certainly would have been Jews because they were coming back to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. Here, we who were the first to hope in Christ, Paul would include, include himself there. So, so I just, I don't want to go beyond the text. I just want to make sure that we understand who we are in the text and not translate it into us. I'm absolutely convinced that the book of Ephesians was written as much to and about Jewish Christians in Ephesus who, who, who made their way up there in the diaspora 
as he was talking about Ephesians, Ephesian Gentiles, non-Christians. And we just, we have to be aware of that so that by the time we get to chapter 2, now we begin to understand why he's talking about Jews all of a sudden from verse 11 to 22. Where did that come from? Well, it came from him having both in his congregation, or the congregation that he's writing to, in this letter. We'll get to that later. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the, to the praise of his glory, in him you also, plural you, all y'all, when all y'all heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now I just want to stop there. If you have, if you have a doctrine that says that you can be saved at one time and then, and then unsaved at a, at a subsequent time, you can't believe this verse. What does it say? Go back to it. Verse, 15, verse 13. In Christ, in him, you also, when you, heard the word, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when? And believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In chapter 4, he says, until the day of redemption. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And here it adds to the praise, to the praise of his glory. That's uh, one problem with having a glass of water up here. Note to self. And I didn't even get to drink. I better drink that. That's it. Okay? So, number four. Here it comes. You ready? Never mind that dripping. It'll, it'll dry up. From the moment of our choosing, I didn't say from the moment of our saving, from the moment of our choosing, that is, our having been chosen by God, since before the foundation of the world, and into eternity future. God in Christ Jesus has secured us for himself, for his own glory, and for his own possession, a people. From the moment of our choosing, that is, our having been chosen by God since before the foundation of the world and on into eternity future, God in Christ Jesus has secured us for himself. I could add, by the Holy Spirit. For his own glory, by the Holy Spirit. And for his own possession, by the Holy Spirit, a people. During his writing and preaching days, the late right reverend Dr. John R.W. Stott wrote an exceptionally helpful commentary on the book of Ephesians. Here it is, the message of Ephesians. Which I would commend to anyone interested in digging more deeply into this fascinating and uplifting book. On these introductory topics that we're discussing here this morning, he wrote these words. Paul's descriptions of his readers are comprehensive. They are saints because they belong to God. They are believers because they have trusted Christ. They have two homes, for they reside equally in Christ and in Ephesus. Indeed, all Christian people are saints and believers and live both in Christ and in the secular world, or in the heavenlies, and on the earth. 
Many of our spiritual troubles arise from our failure to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We tend either to pursue Christ and withdraw from the world or to become preoccupied with the world and forget that we are also in Christ. Wow, that's pretty good. Look with me at verse 15. For this reason, Paul says, for this reason, for all that I've just said from from verse 3 to verse 14, and oh, by the way, it's one sentence in the text, in the Greek text. Verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 3 to verse 14, in the Greek text, one sentence. It's as if he can't get it out fast enough. And then he says in verse 15, therefore, after all this that I could hardly get out quickly enough, therefore, or for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, all the saints, so almost certainly he's talking here about the divide between Jews and Christians and that they love every one of them, they love all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, that's capital S, spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. that deserves a series of messages just by itself. But let me suffice to say that Jesus Christ has secured us for God, God's glory, and God's possession, making us his people. Finally, don't quit on me now. We're almost there. This is the last one. Here, our last point of truth. Here it is. The one true and living God has blessed his whole creation by placing the risen Jesus Christ to rule and to reign above all rule and rulers on the earth and in the heavenlies to manifest God's good and sovereign grace and glory forever and ever, amen. The one true and living God has blessed his whole creation by placing the risen Jesus Christ to rule and to reign above all rule and rulers on the earth and in the heavenlies to manifest God's good and sovereign grace and glory forever and ever, amen. Dan's going to show you a stunning, truly amazing picture now. I got it yesterday from my friend Johnny Walker on one of his Facebook posts, no, not the bourbon maker. I met him in seminary. He is a skilled uh, counselor, clinical therapist. He's like six, seven and 300 and something pounds at one point. He probably doesn't weigh that much now, but he's a big, big guy. What is this? That's not a made up, that's not a made up thing. That's, a, that's an actual photo. This is a mature, and that's the technical term. This is a mature supercell thundercloud formation. Isn't that beautiful? 
Isn't that terrifying? I can tell you that it was terrifying for the people on the other end of it, though they likely didn't see it from their basements where they were no doubt hiding and huddling in fear, praying that it would just pass them by. The potential for catastrophe and devastation and death is every bit as much as it is beautiful. Such is God's glory. Did you know that? C.S. Lewis suggested that it's God's glory that provides the fires of hell's fury. We know sinful, unredeemed flesh can't cohabitate or withstand the holiness and, and glory of God because God tells us so in the Bible. When Moses asked the Lord on Mount Sinai to see his glory, the Lord told him, no man can see my glory and live. But he did allow Moses to glimpse the remnants of his glory as he passed by Moses on the mountain, the rocks splitting around him as he passed. Just think of that. And to those who are not saved, not forgiven of their sins, and not redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and reborn by the Spirit of God, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all things ought to be and will one day be an eternally terrifying prospect. But to those of us who are being saved, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is and will be an eternal gift of God's glory, far more thrilling and beautiful than anything we will experience on this present earth. Here are the last two verses in chapter 1. And he, that is God, the Father, put all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his, Christ's body, the fullness of him, Christ, who fills all in all. all right, that's, that's God at the end there. So, so if I put the uh, antecedents in there, and God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is Christ's body, the fullness of God, who fills all in all. So the only thing for us to do is to do everything we possibly can, God's word in the scriptures and his spirit in our midst, to make our election sure, whether we be of Israel or of the nations. Either way, Jesus Christ is our only hope now and into eternity. This has been chosen in Christ by the good and sovereign will of God. First installment in the miniseries Israel the church, and the whole people of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your glory displayed in so many ways in your creation and hopefully intentionally in our lives. And we look forward to that time when your glory will not be terrifying to us, but your glory will be inviting to us. And in fact, in some strange way, your word also says that we will share it with you. Even though you don't share it with anyone, uh, the, it, it says that we will, as your children, share in your glory. Lord, I thank you for that incredible promise. I thank you for these people here. I pray, Lord, that we will have heard what you had to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen.